0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rachel Bloom, loves musical theater. And not just the good stuff.
2: I can't choose that, like, I love musical theater. Even when, like, I know the lyrics could be better, or even when, like, the emotion for this isn't earned, or even when it feels kind of paint-by-numbers, like, a big orchestral swell or, like, a bunch of people tap-dancing, it makes me smile.
1: Fair enough. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Rachel Bloom. She's the star and creator of the CW's hit show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She'll tell me why she relates to Rebecca Bunch, the titular crazy ex-girlfriend.
2: As someone who let love throughout my life made me feel powerless, disenfranchised, crazy, obsessed, the opposite of empowered. So I really connected with the premise and I didn't care like if it was PC or not. To me, it felt truthful. I don't care if like, oh, but that's not like a likable character. Like, I don't, It's true.
1: Then, Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. The two co-created the hit Netflix show One Day at a Time. They'll tell me how after years of writing snarky, cynical jokes for TV, it was really nice to try out some sincerity for a change. There are
0: definitely shows I worked on where no feelings would have... You don't pitch feelings. It's, <laughs> right. it's how many f- jokes can I think up right now?
1: Finally, you ever feel like watching a silly movie, like a dumb one, like the kind where... Uh, grammy award winner seal gets attacked by a pack of wolves well have i got a movie for you it's all coming up on bullseye let's go it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my first guest is rachel bloom when we talked in 2016 she just won a golden glow and at the ceremony She seemed legitimately shocked that she won. Not just because she beat Julia Louis-Dreyfus and all, but also because her show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, is on the CW. And maybe a million people watch it, which is a lot. But it's not a lot for a network TV show. And also, I'm guessing, because her show is a little weird. Or at least unusual. For one thing, it's a musical. Two songs an episode. For another, it's a romantic comedy that is shockingly honest about feelings. I mean, it comes right from the heart. The theme song has a refrain about the title character being broken inside. It's also honest about gender. This song from the first season of the show is about getting ready for a date. It's called Sexy Getting Ready Song.
2: A first time make everything shining smooth. Oh, yeah. Cause I want my buck there to be so soft for you. I'm gonna make this night a one you'll never forget. Cause boy, I know you like an hourglass in a oh. Let's see how the guys get ready. If it's the sexy getting ready song. The sexy and
1: ready sound. Rachel Bloom, welcome to Bullseye. It is great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I hope that I didn't That
2: was my best impression of like what I would sound like if I was on public radio. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Do I really
1: sound different no, you when don't. I'm on public you, radio? Well that... you
2: well, in the opening you suddenly like went into into radio voice, but now you're just talking.
1: That's what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to have announcer voice when you're reading something. It went when a little you...
2: lower. I feel like you're accessing – it's not like you're faking anything. It's like you're accessing more of a
1: bass. Oh, that's my theater train.
2: More of a Fraser Crane. I'm
1: supporting my diaphragm. There you go. I found my resonance.
2: Ha. Huh. Yeah,
1: you got it exactly. <laughs> Rachel Bloom, for the benefit of our radio audience, knows that in order to find your resonance, you put your hand on your chest, uh, then go through your entire uh, register from low to from high to low and uh-huh. find where you feel the most vibration.
2: There you go. Where'd That's you go to school? The center
1: of your voice. I went to School of the Arts in San Francisco high school. Ooh. Where'd you go to school, Rachel Bloom?
2: I grew up in California. Went to public high school here, and then I grew up, went to New York University.
1: One of the things about a uh, crazy ex-girlfriend that is so great. And there's a, a lot of them. I'm a big fan of the show. Hey, thanks. No problem. Is that it is very specific about Southern California in a way that Southern California is rarely seen specifically in film and television. Like, there's so much Southern California in film and television. Yeah. But so little of what most of Southern California is.
2: Well, most people who live here and are in entertainment, nine times out of ten have come from the East Coast. So they have a very, like, you know, recently moved to Southern California, uh, probably moved here with a job to seek success. They have a very specific view of it. Um, I grew up here similarly feeling like an outsider, but I was born here and grew up here the whole time wanting to be on the East Coast, but, like, being kind of stuck here. And so... When I think of Southern California, I don't automatically think, like, the industry I'm in. I think about my childhood and, like, my parents being cold in restaurants. <laughs> and, like, and just, like, when when my mom orders a taco, just being like, how spicy is the sauce? And the waitress being like, I mean, I don't know. It's, like, spicy. And she's like, I don't, I can't eat the spicy sauce. Like... My Just my family's not—they're East Coast people who, like, are living a mile away from the beach.
1: But also I think that it is a specific type of suburbia. The show is set in West Covina. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the suburbs of Southern California, uh, many or most of them, are the home of— a lot of the kind of ethnic and cultural diversity of Southern California. And so, you know, somebody might think of uh, recent Chinese immigrants living in a Chinatown in a city like San Francisco or New York or Seattle. And here in Southern California, they live in a few towns east of Los Angeles that are as suburban as any other, only all the signs are in Chinese
2: even more so like you go to the mall in West Covina and it's truly mixed. I mean, it's, it's such a melting pot. You know, I think that LA city proper is, is, is very like segregated. Um, a lot of it's been gentrified, but in the suburbs, you get kind of like a color blindness that you don't get in the city, but still like cultural traditions. I mean, you know, a lot of the great restaurants in West Covina are like Chinese, Korean, Filipino restaurants. But like, I mean, we say it's like people of all cultures going to the same Applebee's. Like, it's this like freshness and this newness where the kind of utopia of it is like everyone gets along and no one really cares like what your background is. Because like, it's cool. We're all Californians.
1: Uh, But that's not actually that real. I mean, that's sort of what the show is about. That's
2: like like the utopia of it. Obviously, like, it's a lot more nuanced than that. But the idea of portraying the true diversity of a Southern California suburb and also, like, what real Southern California is like as opposed to, like, the Hollywood version or, like, rich people by the beach. um, That's what we're going for.
1: I want to play a song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. This song is called West Covina, and the context is that my guest Rachel Bloom's character has moved from New York to Southern California ostensibly because she got a great job offer in West Covina. That's not the case. She's telling herself it's because she just needs a fresh start. She's actually in a weird kind of love With an ex boyfriend from middle school summer camp. Um, And that love is probably a cover up for deeper emotional issues. Uh, The song is sort of a tribute to the idea of what West Covina might be.
2: West Covina. are good bye bye
1: sorry kids Bunch of cuts tuba anymore no, no more band yeah, give that nice back dress.
2: and also by coincidence so random just by chance who'd have thought it's so remarkable and here right so so that this guy josh just happens to be I just like listening to that, though. I was like, oh, I love it.
1: Why do you love it?
2: I love that song because that's a full, I think it's like a 30-something piece orchestra. And, like, I went from doing, like, music videos on the Internet to, like, getting to write a song for, like, a multiple-piece orchestra. And so I still love the lushness of that. And that type of song... In many ways, that was something that I'd been—that contrast of, like, glamorous versus reality is kind of the core of the show, and it was something I'd been wanting to do for quite some time. So I still love that song.
1: Almost every song in the show undercuts the expectations of the genre that it's presented in. Um, You know, they're not—that is, on its face, ironic, but they're not performed ironically or anything. How do you feel about watching the most unironic musical theater? And I don't mean like high art musical. I'm not talking about Sondheim yeah. here. I'm talking about middle brow, unironic, swelling choruses in musical theater.
2: Um, I have a really mixed relationship with it because on one hand, if you go on my, my iPhone – There are some very mediocre musicals on there that I will listen to. I mean, I only listened to musicals solely until I was 20 years old. Um, So I'm still catching up to literally every other genre. Um, I feel it's mixed because when I got to school, I went to school to be a musical theater major. And one of the things that I realized was like, oh so many musicals are bad. (laughs) Like 70% of musical theater is like not great. Um, And I started writing kind of simultaneously. I got on the sketch comedy group simultaneously with being a freshman musical theater major. And I began to like resent the cheesiness of the writing. But like it still brings like an unironic joy in me. There's this musical called Triumph of Love. Some of it's like great. And other parts are, like, not great, but, like, it, like, elicits an emotion in me that feels akin to a sexual orientation. (laughs) Like, I can't choose that, like, I love musical theater even when, like, I know the lyrics could be better or even when, like, the emotion for this isn't earned or even when it feels kind of paint-by-numbers. Like, a big orchestral swell or, like, a bunch of people tap dancing, it makes me smile.
1: Were you listening to... Evita or something when you were going through the emotional torment of adolescence, and the rest of us were listening to Nirvana or equivalent. Yeah, I was
2: listening to I was listening to Assassins, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, Last Five Years, Rent. That was a huge one. Rent was a huge one. Um, thoroughly Modern Millie. There's this song called Forget About the Boy. That I would listen to a lot. I mean, yeah, I would literally lock myself in a room, listen to show tunes and stare in the mirror and lip sync to them.
1: Was that because you were doing what your character on the show does, which is to say so often she is presenting the face of happiness while being deeply and profoundly unhappy?
2: I mean, it definitely was like an escape. It was a way for me to like explore different roles i mean in some ways my character is through the musical numbers trying on different costumes and i feel like that's in many ways what acting is (laughs) um you're trying on different personas but absolutely it was an escape and for many years like i had these kind of different parts of my personality that were like either really 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 happy like the part that like loved musical theater and disneyland and escapism and then like a really dark side that was like Sad and anxious and wrote dark poetry and was like really interested in facts about serial killers. And like the two rarely met. Um and then I basically I discovered Sondheim. Sondheim and candor and Ebb. So Sondheim Assassins, Sweeney Todd, and then Candor and Ebb Chicago Cabaret. The first time that, like, oh, you have this kind of happy sounding music with very dark subject matter.
1: How did you resolve those two feelings within yourself or to what extent have you
2: creating i think creating my own work and doing like a lot of therapy (laughs) 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 um but i think as i've become more more secure in who i am and like proud of like my quirkiness and differences and i think that as you get older that becomes cooler and also now it's very cool to like be different and be kind of a nerd and like it's okay that i admit I'm really into musical theater. Uh, I've become okay with it and I've learned to kind of almost exploit those idiosyncrasies and differences.
1: I knew people because I went to a theater high school who aspired to a career in musical theater. And like aspiring to a career in entertainment is a fundamentally a road to pain and disappointment because no one actually succeeds at it um and then succeeding at it turns out to really stink for a lot of people but like um but musical theater specifically is such a brutal aspiration because every 18-year-old who wants to be an entertainer wants to do musical theater because it's real fun to do oh yeah i love to be to be in musical theater it's the funnest
2: <laughs> yeah
1: um and but the problem is that you know Broadway is like 10 shows at any given time. Yeah. <laughs> or like 14. I don't know how many are running. But, you know, it's like a total of like 300 jobs and then like six touring companies of whatever at that moment.
2: It's very competitive. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't speak to that because there are also a lot of non equity touring productions now.
1: We're not going to get into the we're actual not gonna get into the We're ac- not going to get into the actual math here. No, no, no. What let's let's talk about at-
2: equity contracts and no. how
1: <laughs> What I'm trying to get at here, Rachel, is that when you're 18 and you go to theater school, you look around and you realize, "Oh, not only am I not the most talented person anymore, maybe I'm the 40th percentile most talented person mm-hmm. or the 30th percentile most talented person and then you do the math, and you're like, wait a minute, and 90% of these people are going to fail?
2: Oh, that's exactly what happened to me As I got to school. Well, first of all, I went to school with swollen vocal folds, so my voice was kind of f***ed up. And I actually have bad acid reflux. Like, right now, I I had a lot to drink last night, so um, I was in Portland with my husband. and
1: uh, yeah, We know how it is when you're in Portland you know, with your you husband. You know, I'm Portland. You That's it. Portland, Oregon, folks.
2: Um, and so I went to school feeling insecure about my voice, and then I ran into all these kids who were, like, more talented than I was. And I think that comedy was kind of my way of also escaping the expectations I had for myself because I had no preconceived notions about, like, I'm going to be a famous comedian. So I went into it being like, it's okay if I'm, like, not the best at writing sketch comedy. I just want to kind of, like, learn to be good at something that I am not. don't pressure myself about. And that's how I got good at writing. But it was also a little bit how I escaped the pressure of, like, learning musical theater. And And I feel like... It took me years to like come to terms with the fact it's okay to try your best and still not be the best. I think I was lazy sometimes so that I could say to myself, Oh, I didn't get that part because I was like lazy. But like I could if I if I really had wanted to, I could have gotten it. And in some ways, like I mean, Rebecca's very autobiographical, but I also have like a lot of Greg in my personality. Um, and this is a part of me that like I feel like I cover, but like the slackeriness to kind of mask and protect myself that was I think a lot of what I had in high school and college and also like ADD and also like depressed and not sleeping well so there were a lot of things
1: let's take a listen to one of the songs uh, that you recorded solo or solo-ish when you were making YouTube videos Uh, it's called The OCD Dance oh yeah
2: okay now steps slide. And touch the wall. Touch the wall. Touch it again. Touch it again. Touch it one more time. Touch it one more time. Touch it again. Otherwise bad things will happen. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I remember when I pitched, I remember I was on the street in New York. I was filming like this this like indie film in New York in 2012. And I remember being on the street calling my producer and co-writer, Jack Dolgen, who now writes on my show, and being like, I have this idea. And I pitched it to him and he went, oh, that's a winner. That's our next video. And then we didn't make it until 2014. But I love that song.
1: I can see how making things yourself is an escape from the pressure of asking other people for their approval and feeling like you might not do a perfect job
2: oh yeah it's completely bypassing it
1: (laughs) i'm not going to tell you whether i relate to that or not (laughs) um but yeah it is it is a classic way to avoid the part of especially acting where you basically have to ask permission the entire time somebody has to give you a part.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Totally. Like, it's complete power. I mean, I see writing as freedom and power. Like, people say, oh, creating your own work, that's so hard. But, like, I see it as kind of the opposite. Like, oh, my God, I get a say over everything. And the fact that I co-created my show, I'm not afraid of making someone mad at me. Like, in interviews or, like, my social media, I'm in charge of my own brand. And so it feels so freeing to be able to do that yeah, creating my own work was always my way of Convincing myself And, and like comforting myself and being like It's okay, you're talented Because <laughs> there were a lot of times I mean like my first, the first writing staff I was on I was the youngest, I was the only girl But more to the point like I was the most green And everyone on the staff was like Better than I was, they were more experienced They were more confident um, And it was a very competitive room And I felt really about myself and that's actually when i wrote some of my best songs because i wanted to prove to myself no you're in this for a reason you can still write it's always been my way of sidestepping rejection in some ways
1: i want to ask you about crazy ex-girlfriend you... i refuse
2: to talk about that okay. i'm here to i'm here to talk you're here about,
1: to talk about your early work. i'm
2: here to talk about my jeans line um <laughs>
1: We're here to talk about Stephen Sondheim some more. Yeah. Um, When you made this show, uh, the premise was your co-creator's idea. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. What did you think about the premise, which is essentially a woman chases love to the other side of the country uh, and quits her job and dumps everything?
2: Well, we came up with that after the fact. I mean, we were sitting in a room. Her name is Lane Brush McKenna, and she's great. Um she saw my videos and we're sitting in a room at CBS and we're talking about, okay, what could be a good musical TV show for us to create together? And I was pitching all these ideas about show business and she's like, no one cares about show business. <laughs> and she was like, what about this movie idea I have called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about, I mean, the highs and lows of obsession. I can't think of anything that lends itself better to, to musicals. And when we came up with it, It it was always from a feminist perspective. It was always a romantic comedy. And as someone who let love throughout my life made me feel powerless, disenfranchised, crazy, obsessed, the opposite of empowered. So I really connected with the premise. And I didn't care, like, if it was PC or not. To me, it felt truthful. I don't care if, like, oh, but that's not, like, a likable character. Like, I don't... It's true. And, And, I mean, it's... It's something that very, very intelligent women who are unhappy do, Um, and men and women do it. Uh, We let the euphoria and the obsession of love take hold and cover up what's really going on in our lives.
1: I think the presumption is that if you're going to call your show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it's going to be one of two things. One is a show where the Titular crazy ex girl, a show from a male perspective where the titular crazy ex girlfriend is the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. The other is an ironic version of that, which is to say a, an ex girlfriend who's not crazy at all. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone would expect that it would be a show from the empowered perspective of a woman who is a little bit out of her mind.
2: Yeah. It's kind of a mix because, like, It's not like she's someone who's like it's taken out of context and she's like, oh, no, I didn't mean to stalk you. It's like, no, she's she's really (laughs) like and to me, she's somewhat of a bubbly anti-hero. I call her like a bubbly Walter White. Like my co-writer says, like the last kind of um, bastion of feminism is like being able to create female characters who are (laughs) like my character is not. You shouldn't do what she does. I mean, like in I think she does certain admirable things she's pursuing her happiness but she's doing it the wrong way for the most part and the idea of creating this anti-hero that's kind of truthful that's was always really cool to me and I don't view television shows based on like whether or not I like the characters I view them based on like if I understand them and I'm excited to see where they go next and so yeah some of the stuff they do is bad but like once you understand their nuances and depth, you're you're invested in their outcome.
1: I'll continue my conversation with Rachel Bloom after a break. We'll talk about overcoming social anxiety and allowing yourself the freedom to be happy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye in the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on independentlens.org. Presented by ITVS. At the start of your day... You need to know what's happening in the world, and that's why you turn to Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR, the news you need to take on the day in just 10 minutes. Hear Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rachel Bloom. She's the creator and star of the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It just wrapped up its third season on The CW. We talked in 2016. I want to play one more song from the show. Um, So it's a love triangle, this show. some I mean, it's a couple different love triangles. Yeah. But uh, one of the central ones uh, for the protagonist is that she is in love with this guy, Josh, who's a real sweet, uh, muscle-bound doof. Um, And in kind of classic romantic comedy form, there is another guy who's maybe a little quieter and dorkier – uh, who's friends with him, whose name Greg. And it's subverted at every turn by the fact that Greg himself is dealing with actual issues. Yeah. He is not the kind of blank, handsome dork that a romantic comedy would love to present as a alternative. Yeah. And this song is a, is a ballad that he sings early on in the first season uh, to her, and it's kind of like a Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire type number, and it's called Settle For Me. When we're together, I feel so grand My heart goes tippity-tap-tap-tap When I hold your hand But I know there's another guy you fancy more So, even though I'm not the one you adore Why? Settle for me, darling, just settle for me, I think you'll have to agree,
3: we make quite a pair, I know I'm only second place in this game,
1: but like 2% milk or seitan beef, I almost taste the same. So won't you settle for? He's like a real Broadway star, right?
2: Oh yeah, he's Hans in the movie Frozen, too. <laughs> now, honestly, he's Hans in Frozen.
1: I feel um, like I'm just saying. If I had my own musical comedy show, I think I would surround myself with people who were like Rex Harrisoning, <laughs> not people with like <laughs> spectacular, not not people from actual Broadway. You know what I mean?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, our cast is so talented. But it, got it opens up the writing because you can create. I mean, we always wanted to do this. Something I, I've always been interested in, you know, this idea of a romantic song juxtaposed with, like, what real love is like or what real relationships are like. And the fact that you can do this, the pinnacle of romance, what I see as the pinnacle of romance, this kind of Cole Porter 1930s Fred and Ginger song with someone who has a f- amazing romantic voice, but have him saying the worst things about himself um, was just such a treat. To write, I mean, it was it was so, it was it was so fun knowing that like, oh, this person can really execute that, um, and and yeah, I mean, if you ask Greg to sing in real life, the character Greg cannot sing. I think, I mean, at some point we have to go to a karaoke bar and just expose that none of these characters can actually sing. Um, Rebecca has a horrible voice, and we heard her sing a little bit in the season finale, like. She's not a singer, none of these people are singers
1: what is it What does the singing mean to you in the show? if it isn't the characters singing um and it's not the kind of unalloyed brassy uh good feelings that often come from a great musical theater number uh, Why is it that they sing
2: it's emotion it's heart it's earnest um it's earnest feelings of searching for identity. So even when um, the song's comedic and they're maybe like, they're singing kind of the opposite of the genre, it's still the character earnestly, earnestly trying to express their emotions. Like Rebecca sings this song, Feeling Kind of Naughty, which is kind of a Katy Perry, I Kissed a Girl like song, where she's sang like really messed up things. But that's an earnest. The whole episode, she's been telling herself, oh, no, I just want to be friends with this girl, which is Josh's girlfriend, Valencia. And in this song, for the first time, she's like, no, I want to lock you in a basement and take over your identity. But she's trying to say, no, but it's okay, because I have, like, a cute girl crush. And so it's the songs are, like, in some ways pure subtext, but still the characters are trying to view themselves with a societally acceptable lens, um or it's rebecca viewing the character i mean settle for me is is greg's voice but it's rebecca watching greg whereas like a song like what will it be in episode 6 is purely greg and purely how greg sees himself and wants to see himself so it's it's characters being honest but also like seeing themselves at their in their purest most ideal forms
1: i i get the feeling that that conflict was, uh, and maybe still is to some extent, but certainly was a great conflict in your life. The idea that um, maybe uh, maybe at your most successful, you're just tricking people into thinking that you're okay.
2: Uh, yeah. Although, you know, this past year has been insane because I went from having a dead TV show to winning a Golden Globe. And it's been really interesting to, like, be honest with fans and on social media and stuff. And I'll give you, like, one of my favorite examples. Um, the other night I did, actually two nights ago, I did a concert at uh, the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland, and I, I've i been working hard on the show. I, like, only rehearsed the day of. I do these hour, hour-and-a-half-long sets that are mixes of music and stand-up, and some of the songs are songs from the show, other songs I've been doing for five years. And usually I'll rehearse the day before, but I didn't have time, so I rehearsed the day of. And I get on, on stage— And I'm doing this musical number, I'm a good person, from the show, and I go up on the lyrics. Uh, There's a key change, and I have no idea what comes next, and I try to fake it, and then I go, stop, stop the music. I'm in front of 500 people, 600 people, and I go, "Uh, the thing that I fear has happened, I've forgotten the words. And it was, like, really scary. And I mean, it's like the thing that you literally have nightmares about, like, not knowing what comes next. And the audience was so supportive and they were like, do it, do it. And I was like, if I forget the words again, will you help me? And enough people knew the words to the songs that the next time I went up on a line, uh, I went up the same part. They helped me through it. And it was just really cool to be transparent about the artistic process. And I'm not afraid anymore if I can just admit to the thing I'm afraid of. And that's why, like, I don't really have secrets as a person. I have boundary issues in that I have none (laughs) um, because I take away the fear of the thing by just admitting to the thing and, like, kind of owning it, you know, showing, like, oh, my stomach isn't perfect or being, like, calling myself the thing and calling it out before someone else can call it out. And in a way, it's like it's giving up power, but also it's me taking back my power and being like, no, 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 you can't call me this name because I'm going to say it before you. In some ways. But also it's being like, hey, we're all just people trying to get by on this earth and we're all just like trying to stay alive and let's hold hands and sing kumbaya.
1: Are you gonna be okay when all of this inevitably collapses?
2: Uh God, I have no idea. <laughs> I have That's no fair. That's I have fair. no idea. I mean Yeah, man, I I uh like what are we talking about? Are we talking like Britney Spears breakdown? Or are we talking about just like It all fades.
1: I don't know. You tell me. I mean, it's your life. Um, You're the one who's with the constant stream of self-critique deep inside.
2: Yeah. I don't think I'm garbage. So, like, that's the thing is, like, I have a higher sense of self-worth than, like, I used to um, because I can now fully admit that I'm human. Um, Again, I think, like, writing and creating my own work kind of prevents that, like, full feeling of collapse where it's like, okay, so I'm not getting work. I'll write a play, and put it up. Like, there's always that safety of like, the writing gives me freedom, or I'll just go insane. Maybe I'll go crazy, and it'll be hilarious.
1: It, it's fun. It'll be fun either way. How about that? It'll
2: be a ride
1: either way. It'll be a hoot. let's
2: just hope I haven't procreated <laughs> when I go full craze.
1: Rachel Bloom, thank you so much for coming on bulls. I was really great to see you. Thank
2: you for having me.
1: Rachel Bloom and I talked in 2016. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend just wrapped up its third season on The CW. You can stream all three seasons right now on Netflix. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. They're the co-creators of One Day at a Time. We talked last year. The show is a reboot of the classic Norman Lear sitcom from 1975. Gloria and Mike collaborated with Lear on the concept of the show. What kind of family to focus on, how to translate jokes and bits that are now more than 30 years old. And the end result is a show that captures Norman Lear's spirit pretty perfectly. It's sincere, but it has a bite, too. It takes an old standby format, multi-camera sitcoms, and turns it into a reflection of our world today. One that is diverse, a little messy, and really funny. The show centers around a three-generation Cuban-American family living in the same home. Penelope, played by Justina Machado, is the main character. She's a mom and a veteran. She works as a nurse and lives with her two kids and her mom, played by the amazing Rita Moreno. In this scene from the show's first season, Penelope's teenage daughter just broke the news to her mom and grandma that she doesn't want to have a quinceanera.
3: And this one, I don't like
2: her anymore. <laughs> I don't care if you like me. Sounds like you're both on the same page. <laughs> Your daughter does not want to have a quince. What? what? We already booked the room and I found a great band. Okay, it's a DJ. Okay, it's your brother with an iPod and a playlist, but it's a very good playlist. I researched the
0: history
3: of quinceaneras and found out they're totally misogynistic. She's been reading again. Why do you let her read?
2: (laughs) I know, Mommy. I let her do math, too. I'm a monster.
1: Gloria, Mike, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank
0: you you for having us.
1: Did you just get, uh, like, a call from Norman Lear saying, Hi, this is... The most powerful comedy <laughs> producer in television history?
0: Kinda. <laughs> yes. I, I was coming out of a spin class. I like to say that because I go twice a year and I kind of want credit <laughs> for having gone that one time. Uh, and my agent said, you know, Norman, would like to have lunch with you. And I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, what do you soon do? Okay.
1: Mike, you didn't, you had never, you didn't no. know him or...
0: No. So I went in and, and he's incredibly disarming and... The rest is history.
1: What about you, Mike? How did you get on board this train?
3: Oh, I just want to point out I did not get lunch. <laughs> 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 I'm realizing that as you tell your story. And, yeah, they had a meeting with me. Um, I was, you know, n- nominally available. And it was the same kind of thing. Very daunting. We're thinking about doing this reboot and um, to have anything to do with Norman shows and somehow, you know, trying to... Trying to take a an existing Norman show and somehow rethink it was like crazy. Once they were talking about okay, it's really we just want to do a new show with the same premise, then it became. Then my brain started percolating, uh, percolating a lot. But it was um, it's still for a long time just know, that's you know people are going to be comparing this and, um, and so it was a great challenge. But it was very you know alarming <laughs> at first. Did you have? Memories or feelings about
1: the Norman Lear sitcoms of the era when Norman Lear had every, was like five of the top ten shows on television? Um, Or was that just something that uh, had passed from your mind or never entered it?
0: I'm really young. Mike is an old man. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I, the the viewers true, should just know the truth
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: uh no i was uh the original i 'm not i 'm not that young, sadly <laughs> um the original came out in seventy five which is when I was born, so i didn 't i that all kind of bypassed me. I learned about all in the family when I was in my twenties and just wanted to find out, so I went to the Paley's, now the Paley Center, what was the Museum of TV and Radio, and I would spend hours watching a bunch of old shows and kind of teaching myself television. Uh, but I feel both like I was robbed that I didn't get to experience it in in real time, and also a little bit grateful, because I think it would have been so much more daunting for me had I known, yeah. you know, when I was...
3: It's it's such a uh, you know I am do remember even though I was young um, I mean I wasn't allowed to watch All in the Family because it was I was too young um, I certainly watched most of the other shows but what's in so then rewatching a little bit as we're preparing for the show not just All in the Family I mean not just One at a but All in the Family and the other sure. ones as well I, I really was struck by when you're a young kid you don't pay attention to the emotional parts as much um, especially when they're adult issues and. I think that's really where we live just separately Gory and I creatively um, on the other shows we've done that's what we love funny stuff that then leads to some dramatic stuff and I was really struck by how much you know Norman is boy does you know those shows wear their heart on their sleeve And, and you know the uh, I'm, I can't even get into it. I'm going to cry while I'm, like, describing it. So I'm just got to stare at the wall here and try to get through it. But, you know, there's a scene where I think it's after Gloria has a miscarriage, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, uh, she's uh, in the hospital and, and Archie is comforting her. Uh, and He's there. And, of course, he's just awkward and doesn't know what to say. And I think she says something like, uh, you know... Um, I can't remember. I'm mixing up scenes, but like that—that that was a super emotional scene. And there's a part where she says, "I'm not your little girl anymore," and he says, "You know, don't you? Don't you ever say that?" And it's—it's it's like this really—I I think the term now is kitchen sink uh, drama, but it was really powerful. And you know, those when you're a kid, you're like, uh, "Where's the funny part?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that you know, the last
1: 25 years of the television sitcom have moved. I've sort of self-consciously moved away from those values which became in some ways self-parodic in the 80s I mean if you think of like what's the yes. top thing you could complain about in 1994 it's a very special episode of something right mm-hmm. yeah. um, that feeling like we have to have feelings in our sitcoms and we're visiting and, yeah. you know What's the greatest sitcom of the 90s is Seinfeld, and it's a show that is explicitly right. about the opposite of that, that how can we lower the stakes as much as possible <laughs> and then amplify the stakes on the least important thing ever, right?
3: And no hugging.
1: Right, exactly. And um, and I wonder, like, how it's different to write that kind of material, write material that wears its heart on its sleeve um, after... 20 or 25 years of people running away from that as fast as they can, for the most part.
0: I mean, it's just what it, it's a weird thing because it this is what we've been writing anyway. So it doesn't feel like we just started writing this. It feels like this is always what we've been writing. And right. as a playwright, this is what I've been writing for the last 10 years, too. So it just feels like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I get to do this at work now instead of for free. <laughs> I'm glad somebody is paying me now to do to to do this stuff and to write in this way because it's what I like and and that's not always what's in vogue. Uh, you know, uh, there are definitely shows I worked on where no feelings would have. N- you don't pitch feelings. It's, right. it's how many books <laughs> can I think up right now, uh, and and that's great too and that was fun too. But it, it wasn't. I think it's just we continue to do the thing that we love doing and.
3: Thankfully, no, that's right. It's it's I mean, to your point, it's, you know, when Seinfeld came out, I mean, even Raymond that I worked on at the time was considered against the grain. Just because every show wanted to be Seinfeld, and still continues to want to be Seinfeld for a good reason. It's yeah, a fantastic it's a great show. show. But I I'm do... rewatching
0: it right now. By the way. Oh really? That's yes. It? No, my
3: son is getting it. It's you know, so god, it's, it's amazing. so good. It's amazing that it has even not the really... pilot
0: is really good. Yeah. I forgot. It's so good. It's anyway. funny if
3: you watch the pilot because at the end, if you watch the DVD commentary at the end as it's fading out, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld says, "Well, that was like watching a school play."
1: <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> like,
3: he's so upset. Oh at my the pacing god! I think stuff. it's
1: great. <laughs> I thought it was so great. <laughs> yeah. Gloria, when you got this job, uh, you know, when Mike got this job, he can always just cop out and say, look, I'm just a hired sitcom hack. You know what I mean? Like I've done it before. I'm just there to say, Let, let's close that beat with a laugh or whatever it is that sitcom writers say to each other. Right? Um you are uh, the Cuban-American woman who got the Cuban-American sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> did that come with, like, a series of responsibilities? Of like wild
0: anxiety? Mm. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> of course! Of course it did. Also, not even just that. I mean, the Latino, Latinx community, I, I know, was also watching and also wanting something. And so I felt a responsibility to them to be specific to my experience so that they would say, yep, yeah, she got it right and i feel i that i that resonated with me and i'm not you know that was the response i had been hoping for in my the vision board in my mind was that we would get that type of feedback so yeah this is uh, i i was prepared for uh, the hate and uh and have so far it's been it's been pretty
1: it's the opposite warm. come on
0: yeah it's been a big hug yeah it's been a big hug did you nice.
1: get uh, like story ideas from every Cuban American person on earth. Like, did Jose Canseco send you a note? <laughs> Not yet. That said,
3: <laughs> I
0: can't wait for all the Cubans to reach out. She's just terrified. There's been uh, there's
3: been a lot on, I mean Twitter and stuff. Yes, people, now right, on Twitter, yeah, now yeah. on
0: Twitter, people are people are reaching out. But I have I have just so I mean there's so much from my actual family. So we haven't you know talked to me in season five. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it's it's unreal. It's unreal.
1: We'll finish up my conversation with Mike Royce and Gloria Calderon-Kellett after a short break. They'll tell me about what it was really like to work with Norman Lear. I mean, the Norman Lear. And no spoilers, but it's just as fun as you'd imagine. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
3: Ever get
2: to Friday, look back on the week and say to yourself, what just happened? I'm Sam Sanders. Check out my podcast, It's Been a Minute, where every Friday we catch up on the
1: news and the culture of the week and try to make sense of it all. Listen on the NPR One app
3: or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. Together, they collaborated with Norman Lear to make a reboot of his legendary sitcom One Day at a Time. The show's second season is up on Netflix now. They talked with me last year. Gloria, I don't want to put you too deep on the spot. But, Go ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. What's something that came out of your own family experience that found its way onto the show? On the script?
0: show? Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, well, the quinceaneras. I mean. The
0: quinceaneras. I did not have a quinceanera. I was the first cousin in my family not to. That was the story I told Norman in our first meeting is uh, I feel bad about it now. But at the time, I just I had been reading about it, and I just thought, What? This is they'd literally dress you up and be like, all right, she got a period at 12 and now she's a woman. And who wants her in the village? Let's dress her up, (laughs) put some lipstick on this pig and put her out there. Who wants her? I mean, that's and I was like, what? And now it's obviously not that. And and, but the fact that it had roots in that, I was like, no, I won't do it. I want a car. (laughs) And and look, I also saw my parents are incredible hard workers. I saw how much. Uh, went into my cousin's beautiful quinceaneros. And they're like a wedding. I mean, people really go into debt to put these things on for their kids. I knew I wanted to go to college, and that was much more important to me. And so I just said, I, I don't want you to spend the money either. Uh, and they were like, okay, and respectful. And I promised them a big Catholic wedding in a church, and I did it. I <laughs> gave it to them. Get off my back. Uh, so that I told Norman that story, and he was like, "That's great." And then I told Mike that story, and he he was like, "That's my daughter." Would well, my, my daughter, thing? if my daughter was Cuban,
3: that would exactly be what she did. <laughs> yes. But after
0: that, none of my other cousins had quinceaneras. and I the, I broke some this weird tradition. And now I kind of want my daughter. I have an eight year old. I kind of want her to have a quince because I think it would be kind of nice. <laughs> uh, also, because she's half uh, she's my husband is you know Irish English Polish. Uh, and so I want her to remember her Cuban side. I want that to, you know, I'm now more Cuban than ever holding up the flags and whatnot because I don't want my kids to lose, to lose any of the cultural specificity.
1: Was there a part of your professional career, Gloria, where you felt like you had to move away from your Cubanness?
0: Yes! <laughs> <laughs> she says too loud. You know, I, my very first show I was on Quintuplets for Fox, Andy Richter. I was on that show as the diversity hire. You get to do that once. Uh, Some people, if you're diverse, which I I am female and I I check two boxes. Mm -hmm. I'm diverse. I am Hispanic and a female. Uh, And the moment you get in there, everybody knows you're the diversity spot. And the first thing I felt like I had to do was make them know that, no, I deserve to be here. And I'm going to show you by being exactly like you. And that is – no one told me I had to do that, but I did feel like I'm so different that if I don't assimilate here, I'm going to get eaten up. And that's what I tried to do. And it was really hard. It was hard. It was hard because you want to say – your job as a writer is to bring your experience to the table. And so when you don't have that, you sort of – you do yourself a disservice, but I had nobody to to tell me that. I use I, had, I was sitting next to the other. We, there was one other woman in that room who I love, Jen Fisher. Shout out to Jen Fisher. <laughs> uh, and we would sit next to each other sometimes, and then I was pulled aside and said, "You know, women do that. They sit next to each other. You you're doing yourself a disservice." But I mean, some the writer did tell me that, and so I stopped sitting next to her and said we would text each other constantly, things that were happening. <laughs> but uh so, so, so yes, yeah. no, he Richter. was lovely. He was lovely. But uh, but it was uh, yeah. At first, you want people to know that you can write these characters as well. I can write Schneider as well as he can write Penelope, you know, and, and I say that because both of us, I think, can do the other really well. And so I really felt like in order to make a career for myself, and one of the big things as well that happened right after that show for me, sorry to go on a tangent, but uh, is I got offered the George Lopez show, and I thought as a Latina, I was like, if I take this show right now, my career is my second job, they're going to think I can just write that. And I got How I Met Your Mother at the same time at a much lower position and a lower pay scale. And I felt like I can write How I Met Your Mother. Way back. At the time, too, I was you know 29. So I was like, I don't know family stuff right now. I don't have kids. I don't. I Dating stories and, you know, f- jokes. Let's do that. <laughs> Sorry. You're getting full uncut Gloria right now. Uh, And so uh, I I took How I Met Your Mother, and I do feel like by doing those shows and letting people see that I could do the range, because I know a lot of Latino writers that get caught up in the, oh, they're a Latino writer, so they just write Latino jokes and perspective, and that's not true of us. So that's a very long answer. Yes is the answer. (laughs) Should have just stayed with the yes.
1: (laughs) I want to play another clip from One Day at a Time. Uh, And my guests are uh, Gloria Calderon-Kellett and uh, Mike Royce, who are the showrunners of the program. Um, So Rita Moreno is on the show. I had no idea she was in her 80s. Mm. Jiminy Christmas, is she? (laughs) A babe. (laughs) She's a babe, and she's working out there, too. Yes. Um, She's not just standing in the corner and making a slight remark. (laughs) Mm -mm. Um, But anyway, uh, her, her character's name is Lydia. She's the grandmother on the show. And... Um, she just kind of doesn't, She, as you would expect, you know, she's a first-generation immigrant and does not see the world the same way her daughter and granddaughter do.
0: Mom, this stuff might not seem like a big deal, but it chips away at you. You gotta call
2: Scott out. Why would I waste my time? That is right. You will never win
1: men over by confronting them. You flirt with them. You hypnotize them. <laughs> and then you do whatever the hell you want. And then they will think
2: they are the boss, but really, Joe are the boss.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. That is what my mom believes. <laughs> 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 and my mom has my mom still has a very thick accent, and, and bless her, she she was a businesswoman. She worked for many years without. The, they both came here when they were fifteen. Both my parents from Cuba. And uh, didn't get to go to college because they had to jump right in the workforce to live, to pay their bills. Uh, but my mom uh, graduated from high school, American high school, not knowing a language at 16 because she was just really smart. The education system in Cuba is great and just did like a trade school, a secretarial program, and then worked her way up, as did my dad. He started as a mechanic in a dealership and worked his way up to management uh, just by sheer work and uh, and delight because they're wonderful, wonderful people. But... You know, my mom really felt like in the business place, she would be running meetings and she'd have that thick accent and would feel like, you have to look great. I go in and I look beautiful and they are better to me. <laughs> and that She believed that. And so her the, the fact that I'm a writer and dress, you know, in jeans and converse, like, horrifies her. She just doesn't understand how I'm being, t- how I'm taken seriously at all.
1: Gloria, I want to ask you this. So mm-hmm. you are, um, you know, you have a template in the original One Day at a Time, but the sh- the show's characters are not that close to that. I think they probably are a lot closer to uh, your family and maybe to some extent Mike's family. Mm-hmm. What's it like to cast actors uh, to play the most important people in your lives?
0: <laughs> well, with Rita, it was very easy because Rita and my mother resemble each other. They're both 95 pounds wet and, uh, you know, boob popsicles, but powerhouse. <laughs> powerhouse sort of delightful (laughs) women. Uh, So... that I said to Norman in our first meeting when he said, "What's your mom like?" I said, "Well, picture Rita Moreno, with, but with red." And then I pulled out a photo, and I mean, and it's funny that when Rita first wore the wig, I'd keep on on set, I'd keep on being, like, "Oh, my mom! Ke- oh, no, it's Rita." <laughs> and then one time I was at the monitors, and she goes, "Oh, is Nandy here?" Which is her daughter Fernanda, and she runs over, and it's me, and she's like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess why? Okay." Oh, yeah, <laughs> wow. um, so that was Norman picks up it, Norman's Willy Wonka. So you say something, and he makes it happen. So it was like Rita Moreno. Oh, let's let's call her. Right, on the oh, phone. sure. And I kind of thought he was joking. And then with Norman, you know, the ambassadors and presidents are calling him all the time. So uh, so that was easy. We uh, we offered the part to Rita. She was the only one that didn't read. And that was like a – once we had Rita, it was like, ooh, okay. All right. Well, that's – we got an EGOT. So what what do people want? <laughs> yeah. Everyone else can just phone it in. And then... The, the
1: plan had always been to get an EGOT. Yeah,
3: Like if Rita yes, Moreno had, had said no, you 12. would have just cast Whoopi Goldberg. Right, right. The, the original plan was all EGOTs, but there are no 12-year-old uh, yes, EGOTs. Yes, that's
0: true. Uh, and, then, and then, truthfully, Justina Machado walked in and just blew our minds.
3: Well, that's what I can... I mean, uh, so we have Rita Moreno, great, and we're feeling good. And then you realize you write a whole script in the center of the show... I mean we really uh, I was having tons of anxiety we're dead if we can't <laughs> find the person who is all of these things. Yes. Who can funny play drama? charming who can badass. be funny. I, uh... Uh, draw, right emotional I mean like so many boxes to check of skill. And then she came in she was the first person that we saw with Norman. It was a big day Norman Gleer's casting again it was kind of like a cool and she comes in and she the first scene which was funny and she we laughed our, our and then the second she did a dramatic thing, and I'm not, I mean, you know, I don't, but we were crying in and the audition.
0: And chicken skinned. It was ridiculous what yeah. this woman came in and did to us in seven minutes. Yes.
3: And then she left and Norman goes, oh, that's a good start. No, <laughs> no, like, no. No, no, that's, <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's the... her.
0: That's her, Norman. But
3: to, to be fair, it's like, it sounded okay. if that's the first one, how far do we have to right. go? It must be. But of course, it was, you know, all, all over already.
1: So, I want to play a clip from the show's second episode. Um, This scene is about Penelope, who's Justina Machado's character. And and like we said, she is a veteran who left the Army, works now as a nurse in a small doctor's office. And um, as we listen in, she just got home from work and she's telling her daughter and her mom about a frustrating meeting she had with a male coworker she calls a Bobo. Let's take a listen.
2: I barely got a word and before el Bobo started interrupting me, talking over me, I couldn't even get my point across. Well, that's just sexist. No. He's not smacking me on the ass and going, Oye, mamita! Oh, that makes me miss your abuelo. You wanna see real sexism? Be a woman in the army, okay? You got a 22 year old white boy from South Carolina marching behind you going, is it hot out here or is it you? Of course it was hot out there. It was a freaking desert. (laughs) But you want to know how I dealt with that bubble by being a better soldier than him. And eventually that's how they saw me, not as a woman at all.
1: Mike Royce, you did a great show called Unlisted uh, that was set in the world of active military personnel who were not in combat uh, and their families and so forth. And um, I wonder when, when you were making One Day at a Time, uh, did you decide to bring that context, that military context, into the picture for Justino Machado's character?
3: Well, it started with Norman. The first day we met with Norman, he's like, we have to do something about the VA. I mean, that's where Norman comes from, more than just you know, any kind of micromanaging or anything like that. He has an idea of something he wants to tackle. And then how can we do it? How can we work it out? And at first it was going to be the ex-husband is a is a and he still is a a veteran. Um, But we started talking and thinking, you know, there's no reason not to make our main character also a veteran because there are so many different nuanced veteran stories across America, especially over the last 15, 20 years with our approach to warfare. There are. Millions of these people with millions of stories to tell, and it our, really our approach to warfare being frequent uh, yes, and uh, uh, relentless extensive yeah yeah um, and and the awareness now of what warfare does to people is obviously a lot greater, and rectifying that has not really been the focus of the government uh it probably has been more than it was in the past but it obviously there's a long way to go so it's a real issue and it it it, you know we wanted to make sure it felt organic to this family so it gave her a real deep biography um that that we can we can uh, illustrate and you know at the same time it's not a show about you know every episode isn't about uh uh, veterans issues we can pick our spots and and when they're relevant to the family
1: um were there things that um, you had to – that you were worried you were going to get wrong uh, when you were taking on all of these capital-I
3: issues,
1: <laughs> underrepresented groups, so on and so forth?
3: Well, with my encyclopedic knowledge of Latino culture, <laughs> I felt we were in good hands. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough.
0: I, yes, yes. The stuff for me that I really wanted to get right is that I'm not gay and Mike's not gay. And so we wanted to having such a a rich relationship with so many uh, gay and lesbian uh, people in my life, I felt a great responsibility to do right by them. And so that's where we are so grateful and lean on the the women in our room who did so much to fill in uh, where Mike and I could not on those stories, because we really to tell a coming out story. To do that in a way that would really reach uh, people and and start conversation, that was something we really took seriously and... and wanted to represent.
3: For sure. And I mean, the whole and any issue that we talked about on the show, it really all gets back to specificity. And I think it really gets back to who do you who you're populating your room with. They need to be talented writers, but they should also bring in a lot of different points of view. And that's where diversity, which is for some reason a dirty word now, <laughs> is super duper important. But the way we felt like, OK, we're in the right direction is that we're taking people weighed in from their specific points of view, having lived as Latino as a woman for that matter, <laughs> <laughs> even as a white guy sometimes yes um, yes. and as, a, a, as a, a gay person and and so we're taking you know these are real people with real experiences so try to you know keep it keep it there
1: well Mike Gloria thank you so much for taking all this time to be on bullseye it was really great to get to talk to you thank you, thank you.
0: likewise
1: Gloria Calderon Kellett and Mike Royce from last year find one day at a time on netflix now the second season is even better than the first every week on the show we like to close with a recommendation from me uh, i'm jesse it's the outshot there's nothing wrong with a silly movie look i like broadcast news in the apartment as much as the next guy maybe even more than the next guy but sometimes you just want to see something ridiculous that's where I was at the other day. Half a day off. It was a Monday morning. My wife and I bought some popcorn and a cherry Coke and laughed our rears off at a movie called Pop Star. Never stop, never stopping. Now, I want to be clear. This is not an art film. This film is about 90 minutes of silly nonsense. There is almost no satire in it. Outside of a general theme of friendship conquering all, there's very little feelings. It is basically just a bunch of great, stupid jokes. I guess, theoretically, it's a parody of pop documentaries. And it's possible that I missed a few gags since I haven't actually seen any of those. Or at least, not any of them since, like, the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. But mostly, it's just an all-singing, all-dancing string of goofy goofs. Like this, the opening number, which is a bragging song that's called... I'm So Humble. I'm a superstar,
0: I kick down the door, got the money in the bills and I'm so so humble. I'm, so humble. I'm so humble, I'm so humble, I'm so humble. Bar none, I am the most humblest, number one at the
1: top of the humble list. My apple crumble is by far the most crumblest, but I act like it tastes bad That song seriously has a lyric that goes, I'm more humble than Dikembe Mutombo after a stumble left him covered in a big pot of gumbo. How could you hate that? The film's by The Lonely Island. It's uh, basically a group project by the three of them. If you only know one of their names, it's probably Andy Samberg. He brought the trio to SNL. The three members of the group have stuck together for uh, quite a long time now, but only Samberg's a star. Actually, the film's structure follows their trajectory. Samberg, Yorma Tacone, and Akiva Schaeffer play the three members of a boy band who are torn apart by Sandberg's career success. Then, of course, by the end, reunited. In all their work, they've shown an affection for the culture of pop music, and maybe more importantly, an affection for each other. They've got enough smarts and sincerity to pull off white guy joke rapping, which is no small feat. And they have enough sweetness to pull off the disastrous joke single from the movie, Finest Girl, parentheses Bin Laden song. Was a freaky kind of girl kept up on current events from all around the world. More specifically, one event. The time Osama bin Laden guy shot in the head. She said, "Do me like that." But I couldn't track the metaphor that said, "I can see you horny like a saxophone." That said again, your request is so irregular. She put on a beard. I started looking at the exit door. Then a turban, then a tunic. She said, "Invade my cave with your special unit." I said, "He wasn't in a cave, but there was no stopping." She demanded Of course, a movie that is this goofy can sort of die. on the vine it basically has to be packed with good jokes and Popstar is even the celebrity cameos they appear as talking heads nobody hams it up not even mariah carey at one point the rizza from the wu-tang clan goes the higher you get the harder you fall ask any coconut which is perfect i mean ask a coconut that would be good ask any coconut that my friends is craft Oh, and also there's a part where the uh, singer Seal gets attacked by wolves. Ah, Seal! Seal, come on, hurry! Are you okay? I'm fine for a
2: second.
1: I oh, Seal! Oh, Seal! Seal! Oh! oh! my God, you got him, dude! Don't worry, I've
2: been in this situation before. I think I got these scars. From wolves? Now let's get out of here. Oh!
1: seriously if you're not on board this movie by the time seal gets attacked by wolves i don't know maybe it's not for you and that's cool but for me playing hooky with a big bag of popcorn pop star is a home run that's my outshot that's all for this week's bullseye bullseye is recorded at maximumfun.org world headquarters overlooking macarthur park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where lately the tow trucks have been out in force. Please do not park your car on Wilshire Boulevard after 4 p.m. They are towing show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer at MaxFun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go team and provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, you can check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. This week, an interview between the late TV legend Huel Hauser and the similarly legendary rock band The Clash. You can also follow Bullseye on Twitter. We are at Bullseye. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.